Dear Heavenly Father, we ask that you would reveal your truth to us today, that we would not be the same when we leave this place today. We thank you for your word as it instructs us of how we are to live. Father, I thank you for an opportunity to speak your truth. I pray for the hearers today that they would have clear understanding of what your truth is saying for them today. That they understand that you have a purpose and a plan for the areas in which you move us in. May you be glorified. May we see our sin and may we turn from it. May we be the people you have called us to be. Even when life is hard, may we be faithful. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. He was born with the name of Lucius Domitius Anabarbus in A.D. 37. After the death of his father, his mother, Agrippina, married Tiberius Claudius. In A.D. 49, Agrippina convinced her new husband to accept her son as his very own. At the age of 13, Lucius takes the name of his new father, Nero Claudius Drysus Germanicus. It is this name he is known for today. In July, A.D. 64, the Great Fire ravaged Rome for six days. As you can imagine, the Romans were totally devastated as their culture and who they are as a people went down with the flames. All their religious elements, their great temple, their shrines, their household idols, all gone. Many were killed, homeless, and many just helpless. Many believed it was Nero who started the fire because he had a great desire for building. There were buildings in the location in which he wanted to build new buildings. In fact, his golden palace was built near the location the fire was started. But Nero also had a strong affection to be loved and appreciated from his people. He wanted them to love him. So what did he need? He needed a scapegoat because all the people were looking at Nero, believing that he started the fire. He needed a scapegoat. So who did he find? He found the Christians. Because the Christians was a people that the Romans did not like. They associated themselves with the Jews. They also had uh, practices that they did not like. Taking the cup and the bread, taking the, bud, the body and the blood of Christ as what we do on the first Sunday of the month. So they were 
the ones that Nero pointed to. So because of this, many Christians were arrested, mistreated. Some were thrown into the stadium with wild animals. Some were even crucified. And yet some were covered with pitch and used as lanterns in Nero's garden as he entertained his guests. It is in this season of history, Peter writes to the Gentile Christians living in Rome provinces who have been witness to or have experienced this persecution firsthand. Peter first identifies himself as an apostle, and he acknowledges their situation. He says they are exiles who are called elect. As you see in verse 1 of our passage, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are ex elect, exiles of the dispersions of Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. The intent of the letter is to encourage believers to be faithful and to be obedient in the midst of suffering. It is this condition that the letter speaks. Peter's desire is to encourage them to remain faithful to their Lord in the midst of difficulties and sufferings. <clears throat> to be obedient as they are people God has called to be his very own. Peter reminds them that they are elect. Verse 2 tells us, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling of his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. You see, it is significant that Peter tells them that God knows what is going on with them. Many times when we face great troubles, we think that God doesn't know our situation. But see, not only did God know that was going to take place, he also knew that they would be his children, that he would be their God. Peter reminds them they have become a new people in God by the great sacrifice of Jesus Christ. They have been sanctified and set apart by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. These saints are called to reflect Christ. Too often we forget that sanctification is hard and sometimes it is very unpleasant as God is chipping away the things about us that does not reflect him. See, you and I are called to look like the sun. As you know, there are many things in each of our lives that, knew, that do not reflect his character of his son. And so what? They must be removed. Could the challenges you and I are facing today be God's method of working on the areas that are not pleasing to him? See, very often we get upset with our wives or our children or our boss 
because things don't go the way we want it to go. Where all along, God is trying to work on you so you reflect him. We always want to point the finger. If God would only change this person, my life would be okay. But yet, he is working on you that you would reflect him. We have struggles in our marriages, with our family, with children, with those at work, as we do not reflect Christ. So how well are you reflecting Christ when life squeezes you? When life does not go the way you would like it to go, what comes out? You remember what Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. When you are squeezed, what comes out? Are you reflecting the God in which you say you serve? Would they say they see the God you say you serve? But see, this is also true for those believers then. God desired for them to reflect his son, that they would live in a manner that others would see him by the way they live. Romans 8, 29 tells us, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. You see, we are called to suffer. Later in this particular book, 1 Peter 2, 21-25, Peter tells them, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered, for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were strain like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. For many of us, those words are very hard to hear, that we are called for this very purpose, to suffer. No one likes the ideas of being called to suffer, but that may be what God has called for you and your life. You see, the question for you and I that we must answer is, are we willing to suffer for Christ? Are we willing to suffer that others will see Christ in us, that we would in turn reflect his son. Romans 8, 17 and 18 says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, 
provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This suffering we endure as a believer should give us hope as it reminds us who we belong to. But see, also, our suffering always has a purpose. If we suffer when we sin, we are getting what is due us. Later in this chapter, again, Peter, 1 Peter 2.20 tells us, For what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it? You endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Likewise, 4.12 of 1 Peter, But let no one of you suffer as a murderer or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. So very often we can be people who are more concerned about everyone else than we are about what we should be concerned about. I'm in your business. I'm talking about you behind your back. I'm telling others what I think you should do, rather than understanding what he is trying to do in me how he is trying to change me. Because, see, I am only responsible for me. You are only responsible for you. It is God who works on them as well as he's working on you. We want to fix our husbands. We want to fix our wives. We want to fix our children. Whereas God is trying to fix us, that we would reflect him. We would live a life pleasing, glorifying to him. That is what he's called us to do. You see, we are called to represent Christ. Ephesians 1, 3 through 10 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in, every, um, blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which with he blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. You see, God wants you and me to live in a manner that others will see Christ and want to know, why are you different? Why do you respond the way you respond? You see, we like the idea of being adopted. But with adoption, we take on the name of the one who adopted us. 
we are now a part of that family. We are adopted by God through his son. We are called Christians who are to represent Christ. Which also means we will suffer for Christ. So we like the adoption part, you know, because we're going to see him face to faith. We're going to experience all such great things. We like that aspect. But are you willing to suffer for that? 1 Peter 4, 12 tells us, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trials when it comes upon you to test you, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And you drop down to verse 16 of chapter 4. It says, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Do you understand the great privilege to be known as a Christian? That he says, I have called you to be my very own before there were anything. He says, I have chosen you. Before there was a world, stars, sun, moon, before there was anything, he says, I have chosen you to be my own. Do you understand what you have when you name the name of Christ? He says, I have chosen you to be my very own. You see, this letter from Peter is therefore both a theological and a pastoral concern. The readers are shown that they are indeed God's people and are, and are encouraged to be faithful to the Lord in everything they do. It is this awareness that they are people of God that leads them to be that leads them to be holy and righteous living, even in the midst of persecution and suffering. You see, Peter wants them to understand that grace and peace is being poured out on them as it continues to flow continually even in difficult times. You see, his grace and peace continues even in suffering. Verse 2 tells us of our passage, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. You see, we like that aspect, that he has poured out this on us. But see, it continues. It's not a one-time event. It doesn't happen just at the new birth, but it is continual. Peter wants these saints to know they have an inheritance that cannot be lost or stolen, even when they are facing death and persecution. See, as children of the king, they will share in his inheritance. Ephesians 1 and 11 tells us, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things 
according to his counsel of his will. Peter wants them to know their hope is a living hope. It is not a dead hope that is only available at certain times. As it cannot be stolen, for it is anchored in the resurrection of Christ. Again, do you understand our faith and everything that we hold to is rested on him raising from the dead. If Christ had not risen from the dead, you and I would have no hope. We would believe in something that would not take place, but yet we can hold fast because Christ rose from the dead never to die again. Verse 3 tells us, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, our hope endures despite the suffering we may face. Can you imagine the comfort these believers had hearing these letter, hearing this letter from Peter? as he is telling them and reminding them that they have a living hope as Jesus was raised from the dead. They had something that they can hold fast to, that they would not just look at their surroundings, but they would hold fast to Christ being raised from the dead. You see, you and I live in a world that is decaying. It is falling apart. And it is doing it on all sides. Here we have Christians in Rome who may have enjoyed some prosperity, some comfort, but life around them was drastically changed. No longer do their friends and their family see them the same, for now they are known as Christians. They are being persecuted because they were accused falsely, and they have been identified with Christ. The things they once held to be valuable, friends, family, have proven to be worthless. The inheritance that was to come to them has now vanished into thin air. Because mom or dad now see you differently. And what you thought you was going to be yours is no longer. They have become outcasts. The outcasts of society. But Peter says to these saints, do not panic. Your inheritance, the one that is beyond your comprehension, is safe in heaven, and it is guarded by God himself. You cannot lose this. He says, our inheritance is secure despite our suffering. Verses 4 and 5, our passage says, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith 
for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Note the description of this inheritance, for it is totally unlike any earthly inheritance. For one thing, it is imperishable, which means that nothing can ruin it. Because it is undefiled, it cannot be stained or cheapened in any way. It will never grow old because it is eternal. It cannot wear out, nor can it um, disappoint you and I in any way. This inheritance, you cannot lose. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you know him as your Lord and Savior. You cannot lose this inheritance. Peter used the word kept. It is a military word, means guarded, shielded. The tense of the verb reveals that we are constantly being guarded by God, assuring us that we will safely arrive to the location he has promised to us. We would make it there. We will see him face to face. We will make it to heaven. Because God himself is keeping us. You see, believers are not kept by their own power, but by the power of God. Our faith in Christ has so united us in him that his power now guards us and it guides us. We are not kept by our strength, but by his faithfulness. It is easy to lose sight of God's truth when we are faced with great tribulation and hardship. But as a good shepherd, Peter is reminding these believers who they are and what is stored up for them personally. You see, this inheritance package has their name on it. Them personally. You. Your name. If this is yours. It is important to remember that salvation was initiated by God. It is not by us as we did nothing to warrant this salvation. It was a free gift from God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 reminds us, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Because of this assurance in our salvation is initiated by God, Peter tells these saints to do something that would be very difficult in their own strength. He tells them to rejoice. You might be saying, how do you do that when life is turned upside down, when your friends are being mistreated and burned at the stake for some crazy ruler? 
But Peter wants them to understand the one who called them to be his very own, he thought it was necessary. You see, we are to rejoice even in suffering. Verse 6 tells us, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Peter is not telling them to rejoice in the persecution, but in, the, but in whom they belong and whom who holds them securely. They are to rejoice in the, in the salvation that is theirs, that no one can remove or take away. Romans 8 and 38, 39 tells us, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor power, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. No one can separate this from us. Yes, you may go through some extremely difficult seasons of life. But no one can take that from you. No one. John Piper says, the stress of life, the interruptions, the disappointments, the conflicts, the physical ailments, the losses, all of these may be the very lens through which we see the meaning of God's word as never before. Paradoxically, the pains of life may open to us the word that becomes the pathway to joy. To know him in a much greater way, in a much deeper way, is what we, you and I need to know him to fellowship with him, even in the midst of our hardships. But it's also good to know that our suffering is temporary. In verse 6 and 7, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith. You see, Peter wants them to rejoice knowing that what they are facing will not last forever, but for a season. Because he says it will be for a little while. But see, it's important for us to understand. He did not tell us how long it will be. He just said for a little while. So here on earth, your suffering may be a week. It may be a month. It may be 10 years. In fact, it may even be longer than that. But when you hold your suffering up against the eternal perspective, you understand it's for a little while. Very often we want to know, well, how long would this last? I don't know how long your suffering will last. But when you hold it up against eternity, it's only for a little while. 
it's only a, a moment of time. And what they are going through serves a purpose. Peter wants them to know. The God in which they serve, who has claimed them as his very own, has allowed this season to test the genuineness of their faith. It is he who thought it was necessary. You see, the believer's faith is revealed in the midst of hardships. The strength of your faith is seen in the midst of hardship and suffering. Let me say that again. The strength of your faith is seen in the midst of hardship and suffering. We never know the strength of a personal relationship until it faces hardships. The depth, the depth of marital love is seen when tragedy hits, when your desires as a couple wash away, never to return. So what do you do then? Do you stay true to your commitment or do you walk away? Do you love your spouse as Christ loved the church or do you feel your desires and your wants are more important? We are people who like things smooth and comfortable. But that's not always the life in which we get. When we were dating, we thought, oh, this is the most perfect person. They could never do anything to displease me. But guess what? They are sinful individuals, just as you are. But will you stay true to your commitment, even when life is hard? Do you love God only when life is good, believing that you are God's child and you only expect good things from him? Because, of course, you are his children, and that's all you would expect. But I'm reminded of a conversation God had with Satan about his servant, Job. He says, And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God, and turns away from evil. Now, see, I don't know if you caught it, but it was God who started the conversation. It was God says, have you noticed him? He brought it up. God initiated the conversation. But Satan, in his thinking, he says, well, of course he serves you, he loves you, and he's turns from evil because you protect him. If you just let go, I know what he's going to do. He's going to reject you. In fact, he is going to curse you. But what did Job do? In Job 1, 20 and 22, or 20 through 22, then Job arose 
and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, naked I came, into, uh, came from my mother's room, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with anything. See, think about it. One day, in one single day, Job loses everything. He was a wealthy man, but he lost everything in one day. He had children, many children, and he lost them in one single day. Put yourself in that position. You're here today, you go home, and your home is no longer standing. The money in which you had in the bank is no longer there. You have nothing. What will you do? Will you worship or will you shake your fist at God? Why did you do this to me? I love you, but this is what you've done to me. Why would you do that? You see, we often think we've had some really bad days. But have we lost everything? Every single thing we loved and owned in a single day. You see, Job showed the depth of his faith and commitment to God when life turned upside down. He worshiped God. What is your response when life turns upside down for you? What do you do? Do you worship or are you angry with God? You see, Peter wants these believers to worship God even when they may lose their lives. Peter understood that their faith is more valuable than anything they could acquire on this earth. As everything on this earth is perishable, it will not last. It will disappear. It will fade away. You see, suffering purifies the believer and produces genuine faith. Verse 7 tells us, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, Peter illustrates this truth by referring to the goldsmith. You see, no goldsmith would deliberately waste his precious ore. He would put it into the melting furnace in long enough to remove the cheap impurities. Then he would pour it out and make something beautiful and of great value. It has been said that the um, Eastern goldsmith kept the metal in the furnace until he could see his face reflected in it. So our Lord keeps us in the furnace of suffering till we reflect, till you and I reflect the beauty 
of Jesus Christ. You see, the full magnitude of this glory as, as we reflect his image of Christ will be fully seen when he comes back for his church, his bride. Just as an assayer tests the gold to see if it is pure gold or a counterfeit. So the trials of life test our faith to prove our sincerity. A faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. Think about that. A faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. You see, there are many professing Christians who have false faith. And see, that will be revealed when life turns upside down. Do they truly believe in him? Do they truly trust in him? Do they truly belong to him? Because when life gets hard, if this is not who you really are, what do you do? You run. You get out. I don't want to do this anymore. Jesus told his disciples in John 15, 18 to 20, if the world hates you, know that it hates me before it hate, hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, because, uh, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember, the world, the word that I said to you, a servant is no greater than his master. If they persecuted me, Jesus says, they will also persecute you. If they kept my words, they will also keep yours. I find it interesting in the world in which we live today, that we understood that Jesus was persecuted. But for some reason, here in America, we think it's something that should not happen to us. Because we live in America. But he has told us, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. So some closing thoughts for you. When I started this study, I thought it was very interesting that this year we will elect a new president. And the landscape of America will change. In fact, it has changed drastically for many of us. The things that have now become commonplace in our America is something we would never have known or thought would take place, but yet it is now part of our landscape. So what is your hope anchored on? 
Is it to have a better country or the assurance of an eternity and an inheritance that cannot be taken away? We can get so consumed with here and now and the country in which we live in, and we can get so worked up on things that are not important. I'm not telling you not to vote. Don't mishear me. But yet, in light of eternity, what goes on in America is not that great. Living for him and knowing him and understanding of why we are here. See, ladies and gentlemen, we are just passing through. This is not our home. We can be so comfortable here and we forget we are passing through. What will be your response when life changes even more as the person you thought should be elected does not get elected? Will you long for the good old days, whatever that is? You know, we hear those things, I long for the good old days. Guess what? It was messed up then, too. (laughs) You see, our hope is in one person and one person only. As he died and rose from the grave, never to die again, it is Jesus. It is he who is our hope. It is he who is our assurance. It is he we should be looking to. It is not in the next president. It is Christ and Christ alone is who we should be holding on to. So what should be our response when our leaders turn? In fact, they even turn on us. 1 Peter 2, 1 through 6 tells us, First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. He said, this is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. You see, we should be praying for our leaders. That is what Scripture has called us to do. We don't put our hopes in them. We pray for them. We pray that they will come to a saving knowledge of Christ, that they would know him as Lord and Savior. It has come very common today that everybody is, quote, quote, a Christian today. And a lot of times our Government officials will use that platform. So why? You would vote for them. But are they? 
I can say the words, but does that mean that I am what I say that I am? We should be praying for them, that they would come to the saving knowledge of Christ and that they would know him as Lord and Savior. But we put our hopes in the one Savior, in him alone. John MacArthur tells us, the Christian life can be summed up as a call to victory and glory through the path of suffering. I don't know if you understand that. We want the glory. We want the victory. We want all the bells and whistles. But do we understand that we must suffer to get there? And are you willing to suffer? Life is hard. And we know that. You see, there is no guarantee we will not face the persecution these believers face under Nero's leadership. No, you may not be covered in pitch and stuck on a pole and used as lighting in someone's garden. But you see, there are many people all around the world today facing death every single day as they are willing to stand for the person of Christ. They are not willing to bow the knee. You see, we need to be reminded that our hope is in a person of Jesus Christ. For he purchased us through his blood and he has given us an inheritance that is guarded for us. We have tasted his salvation and we can rejoice of this inheritance that is set before us. But some of you are facing great hardships even today as life is hard. Life has come at a very bad time with trouble. But I can also tell you, for those of you who are not facing difficulties, guess what? It just may be around the corner. We will suffer here in this world. In fact, it may be great suffering. I do not know what that looks like. But what I do know is my hope is stead in the man Jesus Christ. I can rest in him. If you know him as your Lord and Savior, you can rest in him knowing that what he has promised, he will fulfill. We had a saying back in our days that you can take it to the bank. This is one of those things that you know the check is good. You don't have to worry that, oh, I'm going to get to the bank, it's going to bounce. No. It is guaranteed. So I don't know what you will face in the days to come. I don't know. But I do know. God is faithful. Unchanging. 
steadfast. So I pray that you will remind us, be reminded of this in months, days, months, years in the future of who you are in Christ. If you know him, you have an inheritance that cannot be taken. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for our time. I thank you for the example in this passage of the inheritance that we have because of the Son in which came to die on the cross for us. I thank you for the free gift of salvation that your Son has offered. We can do nothing to warrant your kindness or your grace. But we are thankful for the salvation that you have given. And Father, even in this room, there may be some who do not know you as Lord and Savior. I pray, Lord, that today that they would surrender their lives to you, that they would understand the magnitude of what you have done on the cross for those in whom you have called, that they would understand when they surrender their life to you, you have called them to suffer. You have called them to die to themselves that they may live for you. So we thank you for this time. I pray that your words have penetrated our hearts, that we would be a different people, that we would leave different than what we came in, understanding the truth of your word and how it applies to us, that we would rejoice in the name of Christ, that we are named Christians as we are called to live for you and reflect you. May we be faithful to that cause today. In whatever arena you place us, may we not be ashamed of the gospel. May we be willing to stand firm even when it costs us something great. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.